Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club, and this is your show. I don't know. You win a really tough FA Cup game on the Friday, and it looks like the season might be about to take off, and the boat gets rocked by an unexpected departure on the Monday. How do you steady that ship, I hear you ask? Well, obviously, it's by breaking the curse of Spurs away. Welcome to this week's Blue Moon podcast, where we're going to try and make sense of the last seven days. We'll start with that hard-fought win over Arsenal. Has the victory had any impact on everyone's feelings towards the title race, and did the performance show that City still have more to give to close the gap? Then we'll take a look at the final days of the transfer window, just when it looked like it was going to be all quiet at the CFA. There's a shock move of João Cancelo to Bayern Munich. Where does that leave City for the remainder of the season? And later in the show, we'll also preview the upcoming trip to Tottenham, a fixture that brings everyone out in cold sweats. But the bad luck in North London has to end sometime, right? Well, we'll get to that. I'm David Mooney. With me this week is from statcity.co.uk, Adam Carter. Hello. And City fan and journalist Alex Brillerton. Hello. So, uh, I mean, first off, Adam, um, let's let, let's start with the positive of the week, and we'll we'll start with the Arsenal <laughs> performance because there's uh, it, it feels like we're getting it. We can kind of ease ourselves into this week's show in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, Arsenal played like Brighton. They tried to they tried to yes. go man for man at City. Um, how did you feel City coped with it? Well, I think we changed quite quickly and hoofed the ball up to Haaland, didn't we? And it was such a non-typical City performance. But I was okay with that because it was quite evident early on that uh, they were going to go man for man and almost box us in and we just had no way of passing through uh that the, the passing through the lines i think that's something we struggled with in the first half of the manchester derby where they stuck three people on our three midfielders and it was kind of there was no option to move forward and i think this time we've kind of lumped it forward a bit earlier and i was all right with that however there was no one for harland to knock it down to in the first half so we was winning some headers challenging for others and there was nothing coming for those second balls and then we were just inviting the pressure on again so i think we we kind of addressed the issue earlier than we did in maybe previous games where we've seen these blocks um but yeah i think um we need if we're going to need to be uh, playing out more directly then we're going to need some other people to be picking up those second balls because we definitely weren't doing that enough on the Friday night yeah um, Arsenal had more control than, than most teams do Alex um, I, I, in many ways are you impressed with how City got control of the game back because by the by midway through the second half I, I suddenly thought actually City City are bossing this now yeah I think it was it was a good sign wasn't it that they, they managed to kind of overcome that first half where like Obviously, it was a much better performance than we've seen, I think, against um, the likes of Southampton and and United that went man for man and really sort of stifled City's creativity. And I guess that was the same in the first half at Arsenal, but he didn't, it didn't quite feel the same way. It felt like they were playing okay. And then second half, as you say, City seemed to get quite a bit of control back. Um, I think that had a lot to do probably with Julian Alvarez uh, and Kyle Walker, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But um, yeah, I think it was... It was really encouraging. I thought, um, sort of being in the in the ground and feeling that you know we're playing a bit differently this half. That the crowd's getting a bit more sort of 
bit, a bit more comfortable with how things are going. And obviously then Ake gets the goal and, and City end up going through. So against a team that are so good at kind of going man for man and, and stifling, like not many teams can do that. Um, it's just, they all seem to have come across, come up, come up against City this month. Uh, or January, They've done it really rather. well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought, yeah, it was good that City are finding ways to sort of get past it. But it's they're definitely not, you know, solved the problem yet because, as you said, the first half was kind of more of the same. Um, yeah. So it was good to see it in the second half, yeah, for sure. Bit odd, I guess, Alex. Seeing City, as Adam says, just bypass the midfield and, and play for the knockdowns <laughs> and the second ball. So, like, because it's it's just not been City's game since. Well, I, 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 I'm trying to remember the last time we did it. I think it's probably Stuart Pearce era, isn't it? Where the, the last time City played up and tried to win the second ball. <laughs> Yeah, who who would that been to? Maybe Samaras. Samaras and Karada, yeah. Or someone. yeah. Oh, I'm having um, cold sweats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, it's. I, I don't know. I differ a bit to Adam because I don't didn't really enjoy seeing that too much, uh, and I think that was just because in the in the first half it just didn't really seem to work. Um, and I've seen like people kind of debate on Twitter, kind of you know why that was. Some are saying that you know it's just not really Harlan's game or. He's not good enough at that yet in terms of bringing the ball down, laying it off to others. Some were saying maybe if Edison had been the one distributing it from from goal rather than Ortega, that it would have been a bit better. I'm not sure about that. I don't really recall Ortega sort of, you know, whacking the ball out of play too yeah, often. His kicking um, was fine, wasn't it? I didn't, I didn't think there was too much yeah, trouble. Yeah. I don't, maybe if it's something to do with, you know, we all know that Edison is, it's not just that he's accurate but he manages, I don't really quite understand it, but he manages to get something on his long balls where it's just really hard. It's easy for the City player to receive, but hard to intercept. Yeah, it's not flat, kind of like I a, think it's because they're, they're mm, really flat. It's not like a lofted looping ball or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so I, feel, I thought in the second half, I think it works a lot better when Alvarez comes on and he's dropping. It's, it's essentially a front two, isn't it? But in reality, it's he, Alvarez is dro- dropping off the front kind of into that, you know, between the lines uh, of Arsenal's defence and midfield. And he's a lot closer to Haaland to pick up those knockdowns and second balls, where I thought in the first half, it was like Haaland would lay it off, but that no one was really close to him. So if he's trying to look for De Bruyne or, or Grealish out wide, then there's more chance he's going to get intercepted because, you know, his passing isn't really of the quality of, of those players around him. So I think it's something that can work if they come up against another team that goes, you know, man for man or kind of presses the way that Arsenal do. But I think you need to have someone closer to Haaland and Alvarez seems to be the sort of best option if you don't want to, you know, change how De Bruyne plays too much or yeah. or fiddle with the rest of the attack. Having Alvarez there does seem to work. And obviously that's kind of how they scored because he drops deep, gets the ball, hits the post and then City score. So... Yeah, absolutely. Um, just on Alvarez, uh, Adam, uh, like it's it, it, the game definitely changed with his introduction. Um, and I thought it was interesting the way Guardiola spoke after the game about how uh, basically saying that, that Rico Lewis had done not a lot wrong in the game, but there was no need for him to tuck inside because Arsenal were going man for man. They needed somebody like Walker who could who could ho- kind of occupy the flank. Yeah, um, I was ple- that's another element I was pleased to see that it, it wasn't a typical Pep performance where he's usually stubborn and won't... It, what I find with Pep, and I'll kind of wrap it, wrap it up into that question, is that before the game, he always seems to set up his team because he's petrified of what the opposition can do. And then during the game, he'll, he's, he'll rarely make the changes we'd expect because he's stubborn enough to say, it's my game plan, I'm sticking to it, and we're going to 
play that way. However, this was one of the games where actually he saw that the inclusion of Zinchenko um, on, on that flank, he's brought Walker on to, uh, you know, to nullify that threat. And I think this was the first time he's kind of reacted to something that's happened in the game most the most in in the most notable way he usually was screaming for that and he's so stubborn that because nine times out of ten his way does work in the long run so it was it was an interesting tactical battle and i think that's what we're going to get from these arsenal games and the fact that he was willing to sacrifice uh rico lewis to bring walker on and, and nullify that threat was a real i don't want to say development stage in Pep because he's the best manager ever and he doesn't need to learn let man I, I was gonna say to learn the, lessons this is certainly not off me <laughs> this this is some mighty thin ice you're skating on yeah, right exactly, now yeah exactly yeah I, I'm telling Walker uh, Pep how to do his man management and his game management but it was the first time it was that noticeable is what I'm getting at and um maybe we've lacked that in recent weeks and he is looking at himself and maybe uh taking a a, a new approach so it was it was certainly evident that that's what what he was doing yeah Adam you you mentioned um, uh, kind of what we'll see from these Arsenal games. Um, yes. it, it, it's interesting, again, I guess, the dynamic of the season that they've met in the FA Cup before they've met in the league. Um, yeah. So does this, does the victory, the manner of the victory and the manner of Arsenal's performance in their defeat, does that change yes. anything with the title race? So uh, with me being a statistician and loving the balance and you should play everyone first half of the season and everyone in the second, so you can have a true balance. You should never play anyone too soon after each I'm other. Gonna, it really throws out my I'm going to interrupt you here now because <laughs> there's like, uh, do you remember? I can't remember why it used to happen, but there always used to be a team that you'd play twice. In the, yeah, like, re- really in this, like they played Ipswich yeah. the year they went up. They played yeah. Ipswich in like September and October and then yeah. we're in a, a battle with them for between second and third. But like they yes, didn't play never, each other played, for months. I know. Yeah. That's why, that's the annoyance yeah so i need the equilibrium of splitting it out make it fair home and away hot and cold and um <laughs> just to make it all fair and the fact that we've had the world cup where it was the um postponed games due to europa league involvement and things that's really thrown out any narrative where we can get a real gauge of oh well this happened last time so it must happen the next time and so i think these are going to be cagey affairs i think the result um I felt like Arsenal weren't that bothered about losing. I know they tried and probably put the best 11 on towards the end, but I think they were happy that they didn't get the tummies rubbed as the, and just you've got to remember this is an Arsenal team that lost 5-0 the last time they were at the Etihad yeah. and they came and the level's above that now and um, that was evident in the way they controlled the game in the first half but I don't think they were really particularly going for the jugular in terms of wanting to go all out attack and kill the game I think they're happy with a 1-0 defeat less competitions to con- concentrate on more focus on the league and also that they've not set their stall out. It was weird. We played Chelsea about three times before we played them in the Champions League final and there was a lot of talk of have we shown our cards and I don't think managers do that in terms of oh I'm not going to play my best team until the proper game. But well, we, we definitely didn't show the cards in that game because we didn't know what cards Guardiola was going to play in the final did we? So um, Yeah that's every game isn't it? So um, I just think we, we didn't learn I think Arsenal were happy with the way it went and they'll be the happier team in terms of how game plans were sussed out I think we're going to go with more intensity in the both league games because we have to, and that's ultimately how we're going to stay in this title face, uh, title races by beating them. And I just think they'll be the happier of the two, and we know they were going to come and man 
man to man and I don't think we got too much out of it in terms of what it holds for the future which annoys me because I like patterns and nice pretty pictures yeah patterns and shapes that's what we, <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. that's what we like here yeah, yeah, N- yeah. nice simple things uh, exactly. we'll, do col- we'll do colouring in next week I think um, <laughs> Alex the obviously I, I said in in the question to Adam there concern at Arsenal's performance in their defeat and I guess what I'm getting at is if you'd said to like the way Arsenal have started the season the way they've been playing if you'd said to me you're going to play Arsenal three times. I wouldn't expect three victories. And I'm kind of worried that City are going to have to beat Arsenal twice if they're going to re- re- uh, retain the title. And Do you see what I mean? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be tough, isn't it? Um, I just can't... I can't really see a win at the Emirates. That's sort of main concern. I think... I, I feel like City always have a kind of you know they always tend to have more of the obviously city the city team always has more of the ball but that seems to be sort of even more uh, apparent when it's at the Etihad but i think going away to arsenal like just everything like the way that their home form is the way that you know there's such a good atmosphere nowadays at the emirates and i think that does impact the team like you know um there's not the sort of negative kind of uh, the negative atmosphere there was in past years or even when City won there on New Year's Day last year um, that was quite a sort of a strange one yeah, um, Arsenal beat themselves just, that day didn't they yeah yeah, <laughs> it's just such a positive atmosphere now I think um, so I'd be I'm more obviously more worried about the away game but I think City do really need to win them both if they're going to sort of catch them up because you just can't really see Arsenal dropping too many points elsewhere, really, um, the way that they've been playing. And we're well beyond the stage now of people saying, oh, it's Arsenal, They'll, they're going to tail off at some point. It won't last because I think they have shown that mm. they are the kind of real deal. Um, so, yeah, I think City do need to win them. But I kind of agree with Adam. I think that Arsenal will be the the sort of happier with how that FA Cup, mm. well, obviously not with how it went, but the performances. Mm. Um but I do think City can take some positives. Obviously, like it has shown that Arsenal aren't this kind of. Obviously, they weren't invincible because they have lost once in the yeah, league. But they're not, season, they're not but, untouchable, are they? Yeah, yeah, they're not untouchable. Mm. Yes, okay, maybe they they did rest a few players or they brought some key starters on in the second half, didn't they? But mm. I think City have shown that even when they're enduring this kind of pretty abysmal run by their standards, they still can beat teams like Arsenal. Um, but I think Arsenal will probably be feeling fairly comfortable, you know. They didn't reveal their kind of. They didn't, didn't play their normal system, so kind of denied City a chance to to have a proper crack at that. And it's going to be at the Emirates when City come up against Arsenal in their kind of their full form. And I'm not too confident that we'll get the win. I can see a draw definitely. Um, that might be enough, yeah. you know. That might be enough. The, the way the table's mm. shaping up, that I mean, there's you never say never. It's still uh, we're still only in January, yeah. so uh, we're not actually. We've just turned to February, but there we go. Um, <laughs> mm. Let's let's talk about the defense, Adam, because mm. I, I mean, we'll come to Cancelo when the Cancelo shaped hole in a bit. Uh, <laughs> but first, I, I want to start with the goal scorer, Nathan Ake, um, mm. because he's. He's starting to get into the conversation that people have around about this time of, of oh, you know what? He's he's been our best player this season. He's 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 kind of on for player of the season sort of thing. Um, what's made him so important this year? I think his reliability rarely makes a mistake. I think he's a player who's happy to do a job and the job we're asking him to do, he's not doing it with a face on and we know that we could fill 10,000 podcasts with the happy flowers and faces behind the scenes uh, issue. But he's one that every week Pep is highlighting as someone who's got a smile on his face, getting on with the job. And I think that's because of his personality. And I know I'm going really psychological and uh, subculture here, but like 
it's evident that he's one of the players that will do the job that you've asked for him. And the area where we've struggled at left-back, notoriously struggled at left-back over the years, he's been asked to fill that void. So I think anyone that does a... And this isn't downplaying Ake's achievements, because I think he's been head and shoulders uh, one of our best players this season. But anyone that does that job remotely well, because we know it's such a like a plaster, just sticking a, a sticking plaster over it, they get higher praise. So that's I'm going to contradict myself because I really think Ake's been amazing. But like when Delph stepped in and did it for a, for a period, and then Zinchenko did it for a period, we know that they're doing us a favour almost and, and 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 plugging that gap. So when you've got someone who like Ake who does it with a plum and really like you know, with, with, with gusto and really, you can tell he's, he's playing for the shirt. I think that's why, um, you know, that's why what's made him so important this season because it's a problem area and he's the right guy to be fixing that problem for us right now. Yeah, Alex absolutely delighted that he chose to stay in the uh, in the summer because he could have been uh, he could have been one of Chelsea's 300 players. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he, uh, it is quite a remarkable, I wouldn't say turnaround because it's not like, as Adam sort of said, he, he's never really kicked up a fuss or anything, even though it was it was pretty clear he wanted to go because of his sort of concerns about minutes. Um, but ever since that sort of didn't happen and he stayed, he's um, he's been really good. I think, obviously, I, I completely agree with all the sort of the mentality and his attitude and his application. But I just think from... I've seen some sort of... Uh, I've seen a few sort of tactical kind of analysis threads and videos of him on, on Twitter recently. And he's just sort of... His, the technical side of his game and his understanding of how to play that left back on paper, but in mm, possession, it's, that's it's basically left left centre back, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. And he's um he's sort of his positioning, sort of depending on where his teammates are and covering the gaps that inevitably emerge when you're playing with a back three and just scanning. He's always like he's always scanning sort of the pitch, looking at where the opponent is. And obviously, these seem sound like basic things for a defender, but as we've seen with some of the goals that you have conceded this season, that doesn't always happen. Um, and I think Ake's been consistently the best. Maybe John Stones has a shout, but I think Ake's probably been, from a defensive point of view, the sort of the most solid player consistently. You know, like Akanji was great when he first came, but I think he's tailed off a bit. Diaz hasn't really played much one way or another. Same with Laporte. Um, so I think Ake's sort of been really impressive, not just in his his sort of application and attitude, but it's consistency in it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, and, and who would have thought like, you know, his first two seasons at city, he looked really sort of suspect and perhaps you can put that down to lack of game time, lack of confidence, but he just wasn't doing the basic things well, was he? And now he's like, you know, the basic things, the, the complicated things, he's sort of just really, really good. Yeah, Rolls-Royce sort of defender. Um, a cheeky question though, Adam. Uh, perfectly placed shot for the goal or was it a swinger with his weaker foot? <laughs> Def- definitely swinger I'm going. He looks as shocked <laughs> as us. And also I'm, he was definitely looking for Haaland at the back post, but perfect for us. Alex? Yeah, I want to give him credit, but yeah, it's um, we've all I'll, been yeah, there. We've all been there. Anyone expected it, did they? Uh, yeah. Especially on his right foot. But um, yeah, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And <laughs> it's one of them. He puts it in an area. If it goes in, uh, yeah. <laughs> if it gets to Harland, it's a, it's a good pass. It's a great pass, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 
Get a dollop of City Nostalgia every Monday. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Alex, you mentioned John Stones. Um, he picked up another injury in this Arsenal game. Uh, it's just frustrating, isn't it? Because, I mean, he I, I always say that he's the best defender at the club and he just can't get this run of games that he needs. Yeah, it's, um, it is really frustrating and it's sort of a ter- just an even more terrible time given how we're sort of playing in this 3-2 sort of build-up at the minute and it, he's just sort of perfect to to be a part of that because when you take him out and then you've got, you know, you've, you've got um, Ake and Laporte in there, it's always a bit, is it a bit unbalanced because it's sort of two left-footers more inclined to go in over to that side of the pitch and I don't know, it's just Stones, I think he's the best sort of, along with Laporte, he's one of the the, 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 the two best sort of centre-backs in terms of build-up but then I think Stones, as you say, is sort of the best when everyone's playing well like he is the sort of the best defensively and combining that with his on the ball ability and just his understanding of of the role that Guardiola wants him to play and the system in general um so it's really frustrating and yeah hopefully it's not too serious but it is just it is just annoying how you know as you say you just can't really build a consistent run of games because I think if he had like you know like we saw in 20 2021 he was sort of pretty much injury-free for the whole year when he was playing alongside Diaz and everyone saw how brilliant he was. And then ever since then, he's never really been able to to keep fit for longer than a few months. So, um, yeah, not ideal at all. Yeah. Adam, was Guardiola having a, having a, a little bit of a... a well, a, I was going to say a bit of needle, but it's not really needle. It's a little bit of a poke, isn't it, at the uh, at, at the hornet's nest when he said that uh, Stones wasn't ready. Um, what do you think he meant? Yeah, so- See, I need to preface this answer with my love for John Stones. And obviously the five centre-backs we've got, I always say I'd be happy with any two of those five. But if John Stones is in one of those two, I'm even happier. But I think you always say, uh, Moons, that you can tell in the first five minutes whether City are up have turned up and uh, the way the game's going to go. I think that's the same for John Stones as well. If he has a good touch and a good, confident opening uh, five or ten minutes, then you can see that's how how the game's going to transpire. And I per- I class myself as a tactical genius now because I also... Because <laughs> you're giving advice I, to Pat. Yeah, because yeah. I'm giving Pep again. Yeah. I also noticed that Stones was just a little bit off it in those first uh, opening minutes or so. And then for Pep to... Right, Absolutely no need for Pep to call him out after in the post-match conference. And he's doing that a lot recently. And I really don't know what the end game is with all these kind of quotes. I don't know what point he's trying to prove. But I did point, I did notice it, but I wouldn't necessarily use it as a stick to beat him with. So I don't know what he means by the fact of him not being ready. Obviously, we don't know what goes on to the pre-game prep beforehand in terms of times that people are turning up or meal preps or training routines and stuff. But it's a weird one that he called him out on it and uh, probably unnecessary. And he's probably just frustrated with the injury as well, like we all we all were. I think that's where it's born from. I hope yeah. that's where it's born from. Yeah, I mean, Alex, just is it just firing him up? Do you think is it is it just one of these things of listen, don't rest on your laurels because this is what happens when you do. I don't know because I I don't. It just seems a bit weird to to do that if someone's just got injured, though, doesn't it? It's not like he's had a bad game or something, and he's saying, "Oh, you know, he wasn't ready." Like he's, yeah, if, he's, he's got done a, if he's done a bad warm up, though. If he's done a bad <laughs> um, warm up, and and then that's been the the outcome of it. I don't yeah, know. yeah, potentially. I I wasn't sure whether Guardiola was sort of saying that, like, you know, yeah, he's done a bad warm up, warm up, or if 
he could just tell from the opening minutes that he wasn't ready for this game. And then, because I think he said after that, didn't he, that like, you know, this is when injuries happen. Um, so I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's like Adam said, it's a bit not really sure where Pep's at at the minute with <laughs> with his kind of, um, you know, calling people out in public. And I think the, the post-Tottenham stuff was was pretty clear that, you know, this was a last sort of resort to try and get everyone's collective um, sort of, I don't know, like Burn motivation. the fire in the belly. Get yeah. A bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. But I don't really know if that's this for Stones or not because like, I, I, I don't know, Stones doesn't really strike you as the kind of, you know, guy that wouldn't be training properly or preparing properly for games. So, but I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have the, the luxury of watching City train every day or anything like that. So it's, that's just my feeling, but um, not re- exactly sure where Guardiola was was going with that. Yeah, uh, right. Well, uh, the atmosphere inside the Etihad has also been part of the narrative this week. In truth, it's not a new issue, and it's not an issue that affects only City. Sam Roscoe has been looking into what the problems are. Every now and then, City manager Pep Guardiola makes a call to arms demanding more from the supporters inside the Etihad. His most recent was part of a motivational rant at his players after the win over Spurs. So I'm here, just listen to Spurs fans. I would like the fans wouldn't score the first goal where we are, but I know if they come here, we have to give them, you know? And they expect, oh, we are in Manchester City, you have to do it. There was a similar vibe after the FA Cup tie with Arsenal. City fan Gaz was there. It was just very echoey. You could hear stuff echo because there wasn't really much sort of ambient sound, really. And you could feel it. It was different from it being like a normal bad atmosphere. I think people were sort of conscious of it. In some respects, though, it's difficult for City fans. Just as Guardiola was worried his players aren't hungry enough, could the same be said for the supporters? I think people sort of associated with chanting and stuff. And there was chants. That stuff go around, was, we're going around and people were trying to... Uh, get things going, you know, uh, and, and, and people trying the hardest to join in. But that's not really, I don't think, what sort of creates the atmosphere. It's people responding to things on the pitch, you know, moment to moment, really, is what, what, is what will build the atmosphere. And I just think, sort of fundamentally, like, people are sort of less invested and, and, and sort of less excited because we've been spoiled, but, you know, whether you, that's, and that's not a bad thing. It's just this is a natural part of the process that once you sort of get to where we are, people are sort of less desperate, really, I suppose, for, for something to happen. That could be one aspect to it, but it's not the only factor. Here's City fan Liam Wright. His season ticket is in one of the most vocal areas of the Etihad, the South Stand. The reasons why people sing at football, you've got people like myself, who I would categorise myself as being someone who sings to try and get people to support the team and get behind the players on the pitch. And then you've got some people who are there to try and antagonise the opposition, whether it be the players or the fans. You know, some people like to see the away fans to sort of give them a bit of grief and, you know, to sort of bounce off them a little bit. And on top of encouraging people to join in, there's also the stadium's design. City fan Joe Green thinks this is a problem. The stadium is essentially a converted athletics ground and I just feel it's always struggled to move away from that from an atmospheric standpoint. The pitch, whilst it's by no means the worst when you look at the um, West Ham Stadium and others, um, isn't the closest to the spectators on the first tier. Rather than having an end as such or a Kipax side stand, you've got for the most part, three tiers split 
into three sections. And I just think these stadiums that have been built in this manner, I think you tend to find they all have the same issue. Of course, there's not much City can do about the design of the ground. The club have previously looked at moving the away fans, but it's a logistical nightmare. Another issue could be that supporters are generally sitting down. I feel when you started turning the stadiums into all-seater stadia, I think you've just got to be realistic. I do think there's an element in, in English football as well, certainly at the top level, where we've kind of moved on um, somewhat from what you see on the continent. We don't really have these like radical ultras as such who are directing fans to sing songs. It's just become a much more commercialised project. Um, I follow City away a lot and this, believe you me, is not primarily a Manchester City issue. It's the same across the board. Of course, none of this is to say that there's never a good atmosphere at the Etihad. Here's Liam Wright again. Earlier in the season, I thought that the atmosphere was fine at home. It has been a little bit dire, I'd say, post-World Cup. But, you know, when I think back to earlier in the season, the turnaround against Palace, actually, it was good against Spurs as well because, you know, the sort of... The, I think the fans knew they had to get behind them to, to make a difference. Um, and it's it's mad how much, you know, it does make a difference because I think when we scored that first goal last year against Villa on the last game of the season, the whole dynamic of the game completely changed. It really sapped the opposition of confidence and their momentum um, with the noise that was created. Liam also agrees with Guardiola that it was only after half time against Spurs when the atmosphere picked up. We got in the ground probably two minutes late and first thing my mate said to me was, it should be bouncing in here right now. You know, just after we've had a tough week with losing away at Southampton in the Cup and losing the derby from a winning position. And, you know, he thought that it would be, against a rival of ours, I thought, you know, we're going to come into the ground and it's going to be quite a good atmosphere. And it wasn't at all. I don't know, I can't really understand why that had happened, but I think there is a bit like when you talk about you know, how you want it to be on the pitch, you want to get off to a good start, if that makes sense. And I think if the songs that people start singing can get the ground going, then I do think it makes a bit of a difference. One possible explanation is that at half-time in that Spurs match, City were in trouble. They tend to win most games at home these days, and the team often doesn't need any help. They just turn up and get the job done. Joe Green thinks that could hinder the atmosphere. The atmosphere is generated at the Etihad when there's jeopardy involved for me. It's as simple as that. And unless something untoward happens in said game, like for example v Fulham, where City lose a player and are down to 10 men, that then turns the game into a jeopardy game, which is unexpected and, and alternatively creates an atmosphere, if you will. Unless you're entering a game against a Real Madrid or something sparks an outrage in, in the home support, it, it's difficult to expect City versus Birmingham when we invaded the pitch at Main Road in 2000 or, or Wigan the year before. It's just it, the game's moved on. The club's moved on. There has to be an element of realism about it. Liam Wright agrees and adds that moving the kickoff times doesn't help either. Generally, I would say when it comes to being a big game, it tends to look after itself and you don't need to worry about it too much. Last year against Real Madrid was a great atmosphere because you're playing Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-final. You know, if you're playing, like before the, the World Cup, we played Brentford um, at a 12.30 game on a Saturday, a team that we've got no rivalry with. You know, we lost the game, which I don't know if, if that had anything to do with the atmosphere, but generally I do think that it's not as bad as people make out to be, but I think in certain games it could be a lot better. Then there's the issue of ticket prices. There have been numerous examples where cheaper tickets have resulted in games where Eastlands was rocking. The classic is the match with Hamburg in 2008. 
could the club themselves help by lowering prices? It's, it's sort of been notable, hasn't it? I suppose in previous games where they've made sort of efforts to, to keep us down, that, that it sort of engenders a better atmosphere. There are slightly different issues, though. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing to stop the people <laughs> once they've bought a ticket being more invested once they're actually inside. I suppose. But yeah, but I mean, I mean, regardless of the atmosphere, sort of lower ticket prices and the solidarity among friends on that front should should always happen, whether whether whether, whether the atmosphere is an issue or not. All of this comes together to create a perfect storm. There are so many factors: City's recent success, the frequent lack of jeopardy in games, the Etihad's layout, the position of the away fans, kickoff times, and the cost of going to matches. It all makes generating a great atmosphere week in, week out, an unrealistic expectation. Unfortunately, it's all just another aspect of modern football. Hi, this is David Bernstein and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. This is the Blue Moon Podcast, and we're very sorry about that. That was Sam Roscoe looking at the problems with the Etihad atmosphere. Um, I mean, Alex, I, I, I must admit, hold my hands up, I wasn't there on Friday night. I uh, I was in work till late, so I couldn't I couldn't get over there. Um, but I'm hearing kind of like from people that were there that the atmosphere was not necessarily flat, not necessarily bad, but just a bit weird. And mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if this is like just top level football now. Like fans go up expecting to be entertained. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. It was a little bit. Um, I, I, w- I would say it was a bit flat, to be honest. Um, I think mm-hmm. with with the cup games like Arsenal, um, it it doesn't help that there is like you know obviously an expanded away section, and so when there's seven thousand Arsenal fans and they're all together in the tier three and tier two of the South stand, which putting them there displaces all the sort of, there's a lot of vocal fans that go now go in the third tier of the South stand um, because either they, it's cheaper or they couldn't get in the sort of tier one where the usual singing people go. Um, So I think sort of displacing people around for games, like the cup games doesn't really help um, kind of city fans find their voice. But I think it is, you know, at City, the atmosphere can be great, you know, for on Derby Day and other big games. But I just think, you know, it is. It, there's a combination of things: just the configuration of the the singing sort of sections at City, the away, where the away fans are. Um, you know, I've heard people say the way that City shoot in the second half would be better if they go the other way. I'm not too sure about that myself, but and then I think it is just modern football as well, isn't it? Like it's over time, people have been priced out. The kind of fans that were you know, more likely to go and sing and make a bit of a noise are kind of been priced out. There's more sort of, um, you know, sort of tourists and, and, and I'm saying this as, you know, someone that goes and watches football abroad a fair amount. So I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it is, I think it's just a reality, you know, when the cheapest adult ticket for, for a fourth round FA cup game is I think for general sales. So not if you're a citizens member, I think it was 35 pounds. I I think 35 it's um it's not really affordable is it um so i think it is just a, and and you know the the blaring music out of the speakers sort of the 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 light shows for the light game night games before before kickoff kind of prevents you know any sort of build up of an atmosphere um so i think there's a lot of issues and you're right it's not just 
an issue at City, but I think there are things that City could do to kind of help. Um, and obviously they haven't, but yeah, it's not, it definitely wasn't like the sort of the flattest atmosphere I've ever sort of witnessed at the Etihad, but it definitely wasn't, wasn't bouncing at any stage, no. Yeah. I mean, Adam Wolves fans at one point were singing 1-0 to the library. Um, and like, I, I, I can kind of see how this has all happened because I, you think back to the to the old days when you you go to the Etihad and, and City would not necessarily win the game and they would they yeah. were like every game was was kind of on a knife edge and they'd be playing I don't know Bolton Blackburn Portsmouth like middle of the road Premier League sides and you go I honestly don't know if they're going to win today whereas now City I mean City do lose those games occasionally but more often than not they win so it's really hard for the home fans to get there That's and go and, and kind of get and go right the team need us today let's yeah, let's get yeah. right behind them do you see what I mean. I- I've literally wrote that down. So in, in response to the, you know, um, 1-0 to the library, a couple retorted, we only sing when it's 4-0. And the, <laughs> so that was, that. yeah, that was, our, that's been our retort a few times. You know, you only sing when you win in, we only sing when it's 4-0. Um, and so we've been spoiled at the Etihad recently of the amount of games where we've won by a three, four, five goal margin. And it, it hurts me to say that because I was very much, we can't take it for granted. It was 20-odd years before I even stepped foot in Wembley. It was however many years. And like my, my daughters have been to Wembley more times than I had at their age, and they're 9 and 13. So that shows, like, it just shows what, what, how, what the trajectory with the club's on. I watched the Newcastle game the other day where they were playing Kesarar when they uh, beat Southampton to get to the final of the League Cup. And that was us. I remember us beating Reading uh, yeah. in the FA Cup to, at the Etihad, which was a decent atmosphere, to then get to the semi-final against United at Wembley in 2011. And I, I hate to say that we're probably spoiled with the football that we see. Where, but I don't, I don't think it's spoiled. Yeah, well, I, I, I it don't think it's spoiled because it's it's basically it's it's a curve, isn't it? Like you, yeah, you're on at that point and uh, where Newcastle are currently now, they're on the upward part of the curve. They're, they're, they're growing into what they could become. And for City, they, they were growing into what they did become. And now kind of like, it can't carry on growing all the time. It has to, yeah, exactly. and that's where we are right now. Yeah. That, that's exactly, that's the uh, theoretic kind of scientific answer, which is, the maths of is it, fine. Yeah. The maths of it, yeah, which is fine. And you can't argue with that, but I hate that though that we can't rep- replicate those Hamburg um, atmospheres that everyone cl- clings onto because it was £5 a ticket or a kid for quid, uh, kids for quid or whatever it was. And I do think the cost element is true. I've got another few theories that I wrote down. We've had big cup games against Chelsea, Arsenal and Liverpool this season who bring big away followers who've had the big uh, expanded away section, as Alex alluded to. And that that's they're feeding the narrative because we've had... Th- big cup games in quick succession so it just adds to the um illusion that it's just the etihad that's bad uh and it's just a city problem i think it's the you you touched on it being a modern football problem couple that with the fact that we're spoiled with what's on the pitch and it is almost you know it's perfect football with guardiola because it's chess match football so it's not rock and roll football that gets you pumped and aggressive unless you have the big games that come up once in a while like liverpool in the title race or i'm sure when arsenal come up come the fans will be there and they'll turn it on then so i think it's a it's a choice rather than like the acoustic or the layout of the the bowl like of the stadium i think that's a bit of an easy out. I, I don't buy into the physicalities of the the building that affects it because we've proved with Hamburg and Liverpool it was the same building we were playing football in then. 
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Alex, is there anything that can be done or do we just accept that it's a, a kind of big games only thing now? You, you play Real Madrid in the semi-final of the Champions League, you'll get a good atmosphere because it's a semi-final of a Champions League against a big team. But you play Fulham at home on a 12.30 kickoff, it just ain't going to ain't gonna be good. Yeah, um, no, I do agree with that because, you know, I think even like, especially with the cup games when there's a massive away following, you can't expect sort of a home crowd, which is, you know, there'll be people that want to sing, but there's also going to be families and, you know, people in the posh seats and tourists. That you know, There's more of an away following, even when it's Premier League and there's 3,000, say only 2,000, they are all supporters that are more inclined to create an atmosphere. You know, it's a big away day. They're in another city. They're on someone else's turf. So I think you can't always expect the home atmosphere to match the away fans. But I think there are certain things that could improve the home sort of atmosphere when it isn't a Real Madrid in the Champions League or a Manchester derby. You know, things like, obviously it didn't really apply for the cup games because the bottom tier was all City fans. But say for league games, I think having the two singing sections, um, so you've got the kickbacks corner and then you've got the South Stand where there's the 1894 group and, and people like that. I think having them separated by the first tier of the away end kind of makes everything a bit disjointed because you've got, the Kipat's corner singing, but it's never quite in time with <laughs> the South Stand. And then you've got people yeah. on the third tier of the South Stand that can't hear what's going on below below yeah. them. So you just get kind of a garbled sort of kind of noise, but it doesn't really sound like much, a good atmosphere. Um, so I, I mean, think as, maybe... as, as Sam said in the feature as well, though, City have looked at moving the away fans and it's just like, mm. as, from policing reasons and logistical reasons in the stadium, it just isn't possible. It's it's yeah. it, it's, it's almost a, a kind of, well, this is where we put them in 2003 when we moved here and we can't now change it physically. Mm. And it's like, as you, as you say, it's like, I guess that's just something that they're going to have to put up with. Yeah, I mean... Even if that that isn't something that can be changed, then I think you know just not blaring out music uh, like right up until the sort of the the second the, the referee's whistle goes to start the game. You know, fans can't. No one's going to come into the stand and think, okay, yeah, let's start chanting. If you can't hear it, like, what's the point? People are just going to stay in the concourse until five to three, rather than you know maybe get in the stand five, ten minutes earlier to try and create an atmosphere if if there's just music blaring out um, and you know just. I don't know, maybe, I don't know if there's any kind of, I know in, this is kind of going beyond City though, so I, I don't know, but in, in other sort of countries and stuff, they'll have kind of incentives, won't they, to, to get fans in the ground earlier. Maybe, you know, it's. I think, did City try like a sort of cheaper at the bar kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't remember the details, I but I, I remember it, it wasn't it something like uh, a pound off your beer for from like yeah, but 30 minutes really, before kickoff or something like that. It, yeah, to, mm, I don't know. I think maybe I think it's just you know it's hard to create an atmosphere when there's so much um, noise coming over the tannoy, and I know it's about also creating a kind of a more appealing sort of product for like corporate sense and you know for families and whatnot. 
but you're like I don't know having the kind of the 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 the, the PA announcer. I swear City have the loudest goal announcement in the league. You can barely hear yourself think when, you know, when it's like number 17, Kevin De Bruyne. And it's like, you could, it's just sort of kind of takes you aback and it kind of almost ruins the atmosphere in a way. So I think maybe a lot to do with the noise and maybe trying to make the fans a bit more heard might help. But as you say, that I think the things that would help the most don't, it doesn't seem they can actually be done. So, um, yeah. yeah, live with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Adam, you uh, you mentioned uh, your two daughters. Um, yeah. In terms of uh, the cost of football and, and going mm-hmm. to football, I, I mean, Gaz in the feature said that it, that they are slightly different issues, and I do agree they are kind of. It's not the same thing because you can once you've got there, once you've paid your ticket, you you can kind of still get involved. Um, but as Alex said before, if, if, if City did lower the ticket prices and they 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 hadn't priced out you know certain members of the fan base from from some games, yeah, would that make a difference? If could City just say right next season we're going to lock I don't know ten quid off ticket prices and would that help the atmosphere? Yeah, definitely. I just think in terms of bringing your family along, I, I'm lucky that um, where I sit. The family next to me usually have a spare one, so I'm able to take the girls on that one. I don't think I could afford to take the girls, certainly not on a season ticket level, but even on a game-by-game level. I think the recent Spurs game was £68 for an on-the-day kind of ticket, which is just ludicrous in the longest month of without in-between paydays between Christmas and January. So it's just unobtainable for a family to be able to be expected to all attend a game unless you're in a really fortunate position, which many of us aren't, uh, unfortunately. Um, so I think you look at the Hamburg game and you can see that that's what happened when you when you priced it accordingly. Um, I was in, I was actually in the posh seats for um, the Wolves game and there's just absolutely no atmosphere there at all, as you can understand. It's all business trips and corporates, and it's that's that's now sweeping around the whole stadium because we've got that entire second tier now, which is corporate. So it's just the impact of that modern football, like we've we've spoken about. Yeah, it just all keeps coming back round to that same point, doesn't it? Now uh, let's turn our attention back to the pitch. And the January transfer window is usually quite quiet for City. This year it followed the same pattern on the incoming front, but on Monday news broke of one very big departure. On Tuesday, Joao Cancelo's loan move to Bayern Munich was confirmed less than twelve hours before the transfer deadline passed. I've spoken to the daily mails Jack Gorn to find out where this has all come from and to discuss where it leaves City now. Well, where we are is that City now don't have any left-backs, do they? That's where we are. Um, before you get stuck into sort of the ins and outs of what's gone on with Cancelo, um, the club were saying that they weren't expecting to sign a replacement for Cancelo. I think they've got enough cover. Um, Ake, Gomez, Laporte can all play out there. Is it enough cover? I, I personally don't think it is. I, I didn't think they had enough. We were all saying last year, weren't we, that uh, when they sold Zinchenko, it was like, oh god, they haven't got enough. They haven't got enough left packs. Yeah, like, what's going on? And then two of them have gone, and no one's come in really. If obviously Gomez has, but they're not. They don't trust him in in games of any sort of consequence, or haven't up until this point. So um, with Cancelo, it all quite all quite quick, but but sort of gathered pace over a period of time, if you know what I mean. Like, the fact he was moving to Bayern was very quick and that was a matter of days and none of us none of us knew about it until um, Monday when uh, David Ornstein did it on The Athletic with Paul. Um, 
and then it was all very quick from there. Was it was that a case of um, like there was no transfer arranged and it's been arranged very quickly, or is it just kind of is it something that's rumbled on and he's gone out because City's position's always been if you want to leave, bring us an offer. Yeah, is it is it a very kind of last minute offer from from Bayern? In I that, think the offer came, just found it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think Mendes would have made it known to a number of big clubs at the back end of last week that um, he was he wanted to leave City. They took it to City. And then it was all done pretty quick over the weekend. Because, yeah. um, I mean, you know, the story came out Monday morning, but he was he was flying out to Germany Monday afternoon. So, obviously, that would have been planned for a little bit before um, the, stories, the stories broke online. So, but yeah, just quite a dramatic, dramatic end to his, to his time at City, really, which has been like, majorly up and down like that oh, the highs have been like exceptionally high and then the low uh, that culminated in the sort of heated rows and arguments and discussions however you want to describe it with pep but, i mean that's just just a crap way to leave a club in it that you've yeah. done you know that, that, he, that he played so well for solidly for two years um and was widely regarded as one of the best fullbacks in the world. And you know, a lot of people said that he reinvented the uh, the way a left back um, should be viewed. For it to end like that, with him having, yeah, not nice talks with Guardiola about game time and things like that, um, is quite staggering, really. Yeah. Do we do we know how it's got to so to such an irreparable level? Uh, just because I mean, you, you think of of where he was even before the World Cup. He was a he was a fairly regular player in City's team. He's one of the players that's played the most this season. Yeah. I mean, he's not. I I don't think he's played well all season. Um, really. Uh, and I think I don't think his form has ever sort of picked up even before the World Cup. And that was obviously sort of an issue that was bubbling under for the manager, um, which probably exacerbated by the fact that, as we were saying, they haven't got a, <laughs> they haven't got a replacement for the guy who's not even a left-back. So that was probably playing on Guardiola's mind. Um, and then when he came back for the World Cup, we didn't come straight back in to the team, which happened to quite a few of the few of the internationals that, that came back later. Um, and Cancelo needs to play. Cancelo, Teller gets really pissed off if he doesn't play. Um, so for him to then only start three of the next ten after the World Cup, it just it didn't, didn't sit right. The atmosphere just got worse and worse. And people were telling me yesterday that, well, people have been mentioning it for the last couple of weeks that he's sort of become a bit of a disruptive influence in the in the dressing room and something they don't they don't need. So. Um, yeah, she's come to a head, and Pep said, "Well, go and find yourself a. We'll happily let you go." Yeah, it's a, a, a the dressing room dynamic is is in many ways kind of it, it tells you that this this incident tells you kind of how much Guardiola values that because it's almost you you could look at it a lot of people from the outside would look at it as this is city cutting their nose off to spite the face when they don't have a senior left back there to 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 play in that position whereas actually city are going you know i would much rather have the lads that are that will work for the team yeah i think it can be both of those things i what i would say in response to that is does do city 
allow Cancelo? Sorry, do City keep Cancelo this time last year when Fernandinho's captain, or a few years ago when Company's captain, where there is actually someone to get hold of him and say, "Look, stop being a dick." Yeah, you needed, and he can sort of buckle down. Whereas that just clearly hasn't happened this time, or if it has, it hasn't happened. It hasn't um, persuaded him um, to stay where he is. I just so I don't know. It's, you let him if he's becoming that disruptive in a dressing room, and Pep Pep might turn around and think well, the dressing room's teetering on. The, I mean, I'm just speculating here, but he might think that dressing room's teetering on the brink of becoming not so great. Is Cancelo going to make it worse? And maybe if maybe if the dressing room was all hunky dory, then one sort of dissenting voice wouldn't matter so much. Yeah, so but just in terms of the deal then, uh, Jack, because obviously it's a loan at the moment. Uh, there is an option to buy, but it's not an obligation to buy. Uh, this could leave City with a player that's unhappy next summer if Bayern Munich don't take the option. Yeah, it could. Um, but given who his agent is, you would assume that he'd be able to bring in quite a few different offers from elsewhere. So I think City would bank on the fact that if they don't want him back in the summer, which it doesn't sound like they do, um, they'll be able to. Um, so there will be someone that that takes him on for a decent fee. The fee, it'd be very surprising if Bayern Munich paid that fee. Um, given it is just an option, and even though it's an option, you can still negotiate an option. So, yeah, I'd be, I'd be surprised if if City got sixty one million from him from Bayern. Uh, a couple of other transfer stories uh, knocking around, Jack. Um, uh, James Madison, uh, City looking at him for the summer. Yeah, he's uh, did that wrote that on on deadline day, sort of in lieu of writing anything else about City transfers. To be honest, um, they're having the, yeah, they're monitoring him. He's one of the midfielders they're looking at for the for the summer. Uh, sort of yeah, what we on end of Jan, so probably the next. Six to eight weeks, they'll probably formalise what they're going to do in the summer. Um, know who's attainable, who's not. The the midfield is an interesting. There's quite a lot up in the air about the summer. Yeah, yeah. Because Gundogan and Bernardo, I think everyone's got an opinion on what might happen to them, but no one's absolutely 100 percent certain whether they're going to be um, at City or not next season. Um, that has a major bearing on what they go and do in midfield. But also the um they want wide players um and the wide players impact on who they can get in central who they might go and get in central midfield as well. So if they were to get if they were to go and get a winger, like they're interested in Liao at AC Milan. So if they were to go and get Liao then maybe they wouldn't sign two central midfielders, maybe they'd only sign one. Because they could move, the idea would be to move Foden into the middle of midfield or play in behind Haaland. So the need to sign a couple of midfielders wouldn't be as great. So the sort of names you're looking at in the middle of midfield are Bellingham and Madison. uh, And there'll be a couple of others that I I won't know about as well. So there's quite a lot of sort of manoeuvring to do before the summer. And they need, I think they need answers from the likes of Gundogan and, and Bernardo like relatively quickly on so they know what's going to happen because the sort of players they're going for are going to be players that loads of teams across Europe 
fancy. Yeah, I was going to say the the Bellingham one is is obviously the one that uh, that a lot of clubs are are looking at. Um, just in terms of City's chances on that, should Bernardo move on to Barcelona? Should Gundogan, you know, not sign a new deal and 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 that that not kind of that's gone one way then the other and it, you know we're not really sure where that is at the moment um what where does city stand with bellingham because he because basically in this instance it's another one of those situations where the players got options yeah loads of options and real madrid and liverpool two major options real madrid are obviously going for a um a younger profile in midfielder at the moment and probably do have a spot for for bellingham so it's yeah it's going to be hard like people around city always say when when they go up, when any team goes up against Real Madrid or Barcelona for a player, you might as well forget it. If if those two teams want a player, they they normally they normally go and get them. So I think the Bellingham things will be really difficult. They'll have to do a. They'll be doing really well to to win that. And Bellingham, you know, Bellingham might not want to move to England as well. He might quite like it abroad and go and want to test himself in different different leagues. While knowing that, you know, some stage of his career definitely will be able to play in the Premier League if he wants to, um, and then Dortmund are hoping that he stays another year and they get another year out of him. So there's quite a lot, well, quite a long way to go on that, really. Um, so that's what I mean when I say about it. I mean, summer, there's there's loads of different moving parts with it all. So it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating few months, but sort of build up to it. Um, and for some people, obviously, the football will get in the way of that. <laughs> yeah, and of course, uh, we'll, we'll get to the summer and there'll be no new left-backs. So, uh, repeat ad infinitum. Yeah, it? well, I mean, like someone said to me last week, it was like, oh, I think they're going to have another another dip at Ben Chilwell. I was like, well, he's actually a left-footed left-back, so I'd be surprised. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. But don't worry, it'll be over soon. That was Jack Gorn talking about the transfer stories uh, that have broken this week. Um, Adam, first off, how are, you, how are you feeling about the shape of the defence now? Because it seems that we've gone from zero left-backs to even <laughs> fewer left-backs. And I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> oh, that's tickled me. Um, so with Cancelo gone, obviously that stifles our creativity from uh, starting your attacks out from the back and, you know, linking into midfield. So that's a concern on a personnel basis. Um, but I think in recent games, anyway, when Cancelo wasn't getting games, Pep was favouring this almost four centre-backs at the back in any combination, and you just shift along when someone moves out of position and when one goes wandering into midfield to try and help. So I think the shape of the defence was going that way anyway. So And I think the last few games, you've got to remember, and I'm just trying to think of any positives of losing your most creative wing-back, um, that we're on a run of three games you know, three three wins uh, for the first time since the World Cup. So we've, we've gained some momentum in this kind of really static, rigid, we're going to have big centre-backs at the back and they're just going to fill in, fill in the gaps. So the shape of the defence, I think, was shaping that way anyway. So my concern on the pitch isn't the issue. It's obviously the, the noise around how this came about and any unrest in the dressing room that's kind of my been my takeaway from this uh, transfer. Yeah, I mean, Alex, it does say a lot about, uh, I guess the speed of it says a lot about Guardiola's attitude to the dressing room because, you know, even if you if you look kind of 
three, four, five weeks ago, everything with him and Cancelo seemed fine. And now suddenly Cancelo's kicking up a bit of a funk and he's and he's out the door. Yeah, I mean, Guardiola's always been really clear, hasn't he? Um, that, you know, if you don't want to be at the club, then you are free to go. And in fact, he'd rather you went, uh, obviously, as long as a player brings a sort of suitable offer to the table, which is what Cancelo and his, and his team did. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right, it does the speed of it and how it just sort of came out of the blue, didn't it? Um, kind of indicates how concerned Guardiola and his staff were by how it might have been affecting um, sort of things behind the scenes. Um, obviously, um, we saw in The Athletic, um, Sam Lee and, and Paul Bias sort of reporting on that. Um, and, it, and it sounded like it was getting um, sort of affecting people around the dressing room. And obviously in an ideal world, I think if it hadn't been that bad, you know, it kind of looked like Cancelo, you know, people were starting to think, hmm, is his sort of time coming to an end? I think in an ideal world, they would have kept him and then sorted it out in the summer. But I think this does suggest that it was, it had got to a point where Guardiola just wanted to cut it now and not yeah. risk. He'd rather play the rest of the season, considering City's position in, in the league, in the title race, he'd still rather do that without Cancelo than have him around as an option, but have the sort of negative attitude as well yeah, so vibes think, sort of thing yeah. definitely something wasn't right um but and we just have to trust him with that because i think you know i i personally think it was the right decision if it was that bad then i don't think it's worth just having him around because as you said he wasn't even playing that much so you know is it is it i don't think it would have been worth just having him around as an option but having to deal with this sort of negativity um i don't think it would be worth that so yeah. I mean, Alex, the, the, the other side of this as well is Ake's play. We, we've been singing Ake's praises earlier in the show. He's been playing really well at left back. Uh, Laporte's also now back in contention uh, following injury at the start of the season. They, those are your two kind of most natural standby left backs, I guess. Um, it, it's just ultimately now that their fitness is key, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, if Ake gets injured, then they're going to be in a bit of a mess, aren't they? Because he's obviously he's been really good, but then, you know, having. Ake, like he's he's been great in this sort of playing in this three two build up, and obviously it does kind of limit City in that they can't really. He's not the most comfortable kind of inverting into like um, how Rico Lewis has been inverting from the right at the start of the season. City were doing that with both fullbacks, weren't they? Kind of with a with a two three build up. Ake isn't the most comfortable doing that. Uh, I'm not sure Laporte is either, really. So with either of them, it looks like the free, the, the sort of free at the back is going to be the way forward now. Yeah. The obviously the other thing is Sergio Gomez. Um, he does still offer you know the more natural width. He can <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm, I'm laughing because I genuinely forgot he was at the club. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember him. Yeah. Um, but obviously Guardiola just doesn't seem to really trust him in in games of any real sort of significance. Um, and you know he has shown that defensively, this is he's miles kind of off off where he needs to be. Even if he is clearly a, a technically gifted footballer, he isn't the most solid of of left backs. So yeah, if if Ake was to pick up an injury, injury, then I'd be really worried because yeah, I think obviously I love Laporte and he's he's great at build up, but I think I'm more comfortable with Ake as the sort of the left back 
the left-sided centre-back, whatever you want to call it, uh, than Laporte, just because he's got a bit more pace about him, I think. Yeah, and um, of course, with uh, with Ake, you can get up and down the line and do a right-foot swinger behind Grealish. Yeah, goals. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I say he doesn't get up and down the line, but then That's he goes and proves us wrong, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Adam, uh, just on the transfer window then, obviously no no incomings for uh, for January. Um, how well-equipped do you think City are now to fight on the three remaining fronts? Because you look at the FA Cup, and it's, it's a weird one, the FA Cup, because you say, ah, oh, well, the draw's really opening up because, you know, look at the teams that have gone. City themselves have dumped Chelsea and Arsenal out of it, and, you know, Liverpool have gone. But then you think, well, Liverpool went to a bright team that looked like it could cause us a lot of problems so like yeah how do you feel about it all obviously you know chasing Arsenal in the title race Champions League still to come FA Cup very much there to be won now yeah well if in the rare event that there's any rival fans listening to this podcast they'll they'll laugh when I say that our squad depth is a myth and it has been for years Mm. and I know that sounds spoiled and entitled and because everyone just looks at the players that are on the bench but whenever we make changes to our best 11 we struggle. Southampton in the League Cup is a perfect example of that. Yet the, the squad depth and there's quality in depth and they're two different things. And I know I hate being pompous and preaching about that, but li- listen, like I, I'm concerned about the depth of the quality in the squad now. Uh, and Cancelo leaving doesn't change that. I had concerns about that anyway because it was highlighted in Southampton um, and games where we shouldn't have lost that we've probably tinkered too much and it's affected our rhythm. So that's the issue with the depth. So it is a concern. I think we. I, I'm clinging to the fact that in the latter part of seasons under Pep, we go on these weird momentous runs that just take us through and we live. We get, we get. find that rhythm, that famous rhythm that he just loves. And I'm just hoping that's going to be enough regardless of which personnel are available at which point. You you, you spoke about um, Ake and Laporte's fitness being key and that's definitely, definitely going to need to carry us through. But I'm hoping we're going, we've started with three wins and we're going to carry that on and find these these latter stages of competition legs that we just find from somewhere and get over the line. That's what I'm praying for because the depth isn't there, even though I might sound like a weird spoiled brat saying that. Yeah, so uh, three wins in a row. Uh, that brings us to Spurs <laughs> away, uh, a stadium where City have never won, <laughs> never even scored. Um, yeah. I mean, what can go wrong, Alex? Oh, <laughs> uh, God, it's, this is not the game that um, you'd want <laughs> if you were... Uh, God, imagine being sort of eight points off the top of the league uh, and having to go to Spurs. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it's going to be tough, isn't it? It's it's weird. Like I think this this is definitely City's sort of modern day like hoodoo, isn't it? I know in the past yeah. we've had you know we've had like I think we've had sort of weird things with Blackburn and you know, Everton, Wigan. Sunderland. There's loads of them. Yeah, there. <laughs> Sunderland. Yeah, God, that was an awful one. Um, but yeah, how do I feel about this one? Um, I mean, it's obviously it's good that we had the sort of the win. I mean, when, yeah, it's just weird that we're playing them twice in such a quick mm. concession. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll keep Adam kind of yeah, tied down for this yes. one. Yeah, he, he, he must hate this this last few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's obviously City have shown shown some signs of improvement, but it's definitely they're definitely not in the ideal sort of form um, to sort of take on Spurs. And it's going to be there's a few sort of weird things like the Pedro Porro like thing as well like I was um, just saying, does anyone fancy a Pedro Porro winner and, or, and Harry like, Kane's record yeah yeah it's I don't know I thought it was interesting with the you know with the home game uh, if we could just sort of draw a bit of something from that um, that obviously you know I don't City didn't play well in the first half not probably didn't deserve to go in 2-0 down at half time but you know there was just sort of two sloppy goals to concede 
but they were, it was that same old thing that we've been saying all, all of January where they just struggled to create anything. They looked very sort of pedestrian and attack, um, not really stretching the game. Um, and I think that that's a problem that we keep coming back to this like 3-2 build-up, but it's a problem when you come up against a back five like Spurs had. Um, so like obviously City have got a front five, but then it's just man for man because they've got a back five and it's it's hard to, unless you're relying on moments of genius from, which is what happened in the second half with, uh, with like Mares. Um, but it is, it is difficult. So I was just wondering if Spurs are going to set up again with a back five or like a back three with two wing backs, if Guardiola might consider kind of doing what he did in the second half of that home game, which was having Rico Lewis push up higher into the attack from his kind of inverted right back role um, to kind of create that sort of six versus five yeah. and then create more space for people like Mares and De Bruyne to kind of, well, sorry, no, De Bruyne didn't play, did he? Uh, Mares to kind of, you know, exploit. Um, so I'm just wondering if you'll do that from the start because... I'd, I'd be a bit concerned if the team sheet comes out an hour before and it's a similar kind of setup with three, three at the back, two in midfield and a front five. It's It could be a little bit turgid again um, mm. until he sort of tweaks something. So that's that's sort of my main concern. And it's just a balancing act with Spurs, isn't it? Because if you want to create that numerical, that numerical advantage in attack, then you've got to think about are you leaving enough back in the midfield and defence to deal with, you know, Kulisevsky, Kane, Son... Richarlison, you know, the Spurs are one of uh, one of the sort of the best teams in the league in hitting teams on the transition, in my opinion. So it's it really is a, a tough balancing act, especially at a ground that you've never scored at. Yeah, that's 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 the key issue, isn't it? I mean, Adam, in in terms of personnel, uh, Foden's back in training following his injury. Um, obviously, Grealish, I think, has been playing really well in the last few weeks. Mm. Uh, Mares has has come into his own since the World Cup. Um, kind of how how do you balance all of this? Because I mean, ultimately, if you if you pick Grealish and Mares again, you, you you go in for that element of control, whereas maybe you need that explosiveness from from Foden to to get alongside Haaland. But then, I mean, equally, you, you could get that from Alvarez. Say, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't I don't know what you'd go for. Yeah. See. A perfect example of that, of what you've just said, is I imagine this to be similar to the Chelsea League game at Stamford Bridge where it was uh, Foden that started the game and it was Grealish and Mahrez that came on to win the game in in a 1-0 kind of close game. And I think we're going to need something like that in a ground where, you know, in terms of the four games there without winning, um, you know, that's our worst current record against away at any team uh well we all as a current team we only have a worse record against wimbledon uh where we failed to win in any of our last five games there the most yeah. recent being <laughs> not, in, not gonna put that right anytime yeah, soon are we? It, yeah exactly <laughs> with the most recent being in february 2002 so if you put park that because of logistics if they, uh, if they could come out uh, come back into business <laughs> so that we could end that yeah, record yeah exactly <laughs> then then it is our worst current record in terms of you know, being four games um, away without scoring, it's absolutely our worst record. It eclipses, uh, uh, or away ground without scoring, sorry, it eclipses our run at Trent Bridge in 1909. So uh, even eclipses our previous worst one. So we, we need something like that to change these kind of uh, hoodoo narratives. And I think the, the Foden may come in with Grealish and Maris, even though he doesn't tend to be 
dropping those type of players that are on form now just to kind of switch it in an away game like he did against Chelsea. That's what I expect is going to happen with Foden. And we need something massive to, to end these ridiculous stats. And I think Conte being hospitalised, obviously get well soon and all that, but it might just knock them a bit, not having their manager on the touchline. So no, you, hoping... know the, you know how the narrative works. Oh, is, are, we, are they going to get new manager bounce now instead? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're going to do it for, do it for uh, Antonio, True. aren't they? That's yeah, how it the, works. The T-shirts will be out. And then another nod to, if because I'm on, from a stats perspective obviously they didn't play Harry Kane against Preston and he's obviously one goal away from setting the out outright Tottenham Hotspur record and we just love giving people goals when they need one look at the two Southampton strikers that hadn't scored all season scored against us I always go back to 2003 when Michael Owen hadn't scored for about 19 goals uh, games and he scored a hat-trick against us so yeah. nail, nailed on if I wasn't yeah well you know if I was if I didn't know too much better it'd be Kane making that uh, record his own on, at the weekend, unfortunately. Yeah, am I going mad as well? Isn't Trent Bridge a cricket ground? Is this when City yeah, were a is. cricket that's, club? Exactly. That's how bad this record is. That <laughs> <laughs> football grounds were cricket grounds back then. Uh, or cricket grounds were football grounds. When the last time we had to run this bad away uh, in away ground. Yeah. Um, Alex, quick word on Bernardo uh, because it, it feels like I've barely seen him for well forever. Um, could he offer some energy in this game that City City quite badly need? I mean, what's what do you think is going on with him at the moment? Yeah, I think he could. Um, I just wonder if you, you do wonder, don't you? If he's is he one of the individuals that kind of maybe Pep's alluded hasn't really been on it in training, or he do, again he doesn't really like I said about Stones earlier. He doesn't really strike you as that character, but I can't really think of too many reasons why he wouldn't be starting too many games recently, unless maybe Guardiola's just been keen to have you know, Gundogan in there because he's got that knack of arriving in the box at the right time and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think it'd be nice to see Bernardo in. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, if if we go with a kind of having maybe Walker start and pushing up the wing to to sort of try and outnumber Spurs and it might be good to have an extra body in like Bernardo in midfield, maybe next to Rodri, like we saw a yeah, bit towards he, he the end of last season. Where he, could, he drops into mm. the back four as well, doesn't he, to take the ball. He does it really well, yeah. That, that could be a way of kind of you know, he's the kind of guy that can get involved in attacks, but he can also then quite sort of scurry back and help out in midfield with Rodri. So I think at a team like Spurs that are going to try and hit City on the on the break or through transitions, I think it could be could be a game where he should start instead of Gundogan, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave that one to Joseph. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now we'll uh, we'll get some predictions on the board. Unfortunately, we didn't win on the charity bet last week. It means the total for the Man City fans food bank support group stayed on £535 for this season so far. It's all helping the Trussell Trust and Manchester Central food bank support people living in poverty. William Hill is giving each of us a £10 correct score single and it's the nightmare of predicting Spurs away. Um <laughs> Notwithstanding any consequences to the uh, title race, I've gone for a one-all City draw. I think though, I'm going for, uh, for for at least breaking the duck there, not getting the win, but at least breaking the duck there. Uh, that's seven to one and uh, seventy pounds if I am right. Uh, Adam, what are you having? Well, despite everything I just said around the Harry Kane record and our record, there, I am actually going for a City one-nil. I think we're going to emulate the Stamford Bridge performance. That's uh, nine to one and ninety pounds. Uh, Alex, what are you going for? Uh, I've gone for a bit of a goal fest, 2-2. Two, two. Although I must admit, when I made this prediction, I'd forgotten that we'd never scored at the Tottenham Hotspur <laughs> Stadium. Got to so, uh, end sometime. Got to yeah. score there sometime. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Mm. If I come through, though, it'll be it'll be a nice nice bit of cash to go in to go in the pot. 
Yeah, 14 to 1 and 140 quid if you're right. Now, remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more on gambling responsibly, take a look at BeGambleAware.org. Now, we asked on Twitter uh, for people to get in touch with questions for this week's show, thinking that uh, we might have a bit of time at the end. Uh, Obviously, we've overrun already, so I'm going to squeeze in as much as I can. Uh, Get in touch, though, for future shows at Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter. You can email us through the website as well, BlueMoonPodcast.com. Just fill in the form there. Uh, We will start with George on Twitter, who says, uh, what are your thoughts on the difference in reporting between the big spending from the likes of Chelsea recently compared to how City spending is reported on. Um, Adam, this has been a bone of contention for fans this week, given, um, like, I mean, for instance, Chelsea have, have seemingly got limited funds for uh, for the next 100 years or so because they've <laughs> they've got a squad now that is is like five times the size that they're allowed to register or something, something yeah. daft like that. So like, have you noticed a difference in how that's being talked about compared to how City spending is, uh, is often talked about? Yeah, I think... It's a weird one because the way they're structuring the deals and they're spreading over eight years uh, for amortisation and things like that, it's just, it's. I think it's a different type of transfer now than what we usually do. So, you know, I think Newcastle and City are still being beaten with the same oil money is bad kind of thing, but anything else is okay. And uh, so, you know, we, we can talk about agendas and stuff like that, but I'd, I just think it's the style of deal that Chelsea are doing now, which is kind of, and I think people are like amazed at the, the volume of deals that they're doing as well. So it's kind of almost, that's a story in itself, regardless of how it compares to how other people have operated. So I think that's why it's, it's the style of transfer that's making the narrative different rather than just splashing the cash on one player and being abused for it like we were. Yeah, Alex. Do you think there is uh, an element of of hypocrisy there, though? Because ultimately, you know, City fans will quite rightly say that you know, in in the past when City have spent a lot of money, there's been criticism and it's been you know quotes destroying the league, all this sort of stuff. You don't really see that for Chelsea anymore, and you don't see that for Chelsea certainly in the in the last transfer window. Yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of reluctant to sort of you know jump on the, the kind of the narrative and conspiracy kind of. Um, track but oh go on i think <laughs> um oh go on then um <laughs> but i think you know i think there's a bit of a mixture because i I've, I've seen a lot of sort of fans of other clubs on twitter kind of calling it out and saying you know if this was city or newcastle you know we'd all be up in arms which is i think is is probably true um i've also seen but then i've, I've seen people saying like oh this is sort of the death of ffp which it obviously isn't because this is a way to get around mm-hmm that but so i think it's yeah because obviously you know as 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 adam said with amortization like it's i don't know say 100 million transfer fee over and it over 10 year contract say is is 10 it only counts as 10 million a year doesn't it yeah easy man um, I, I like the way yeah, you yeah, easy I numbers. yeah i was gonna say eight pivot. and i was like i don't know how to fit yeah. eight. <laughs> <laughs> um, perfection but obviously it, it does highlight that well it, it's still not really good for the game is it because at the end of the day, yes, on the books, it's okay. And by a year-by-year basis, it's okay. And Chelsea are complying with financial fair play. But I don't think it's in the spirit mm. of what FFP was meant to do because at the end of the day, you've still got a club spending 100 and I don't even know how much it is for Enzo Fernandez, and they've brought in Mudrick for a lot. And all these players, they're still kind of inflating the market, pushing lots of, you know, just basically buying whoever they want. But they're like, oh, actually, we're, we're gonna we're gonna spread the cost over the next eight years, and we're also gonna pay in ten million installments. So actually, mm-hmm. it's fine. It's not really, is it? You're still spending all that money. So yeah, they're not. It wouldn't be right to say that they're brazenly uh, violating FFP because they're not. 
but it's still I do still think that obviously it's not good for football in a whole, which in itself isn't is hard for a City fan to say because you know City have spent a lot of money. Um, I think yeah. I think it ultimately <laughs> it boils down to though like again City has this their City aren't the problem they are a symptom of the problem in that sense yeah. that, yep. they, they are just one of Correct. the teams that can spend a lot of money as yeah. are Chelsea as are Liverpool as are whoever. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. if, you know, if you're a West Bromwich Albion fan, you look at it yeah. and go, well, we ain't ever going to be able to spend that. So what, like, what's the point sort of thing? I get that yeah. argument. It's just, it's, you know, it sometimes it, it, it can taste a bit sour when you see uh, how mm. Chelsea have done it right, this transfer window, while, uh, while since he maybe <laughs> haven't in, uh, in yeah. previous ones, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Right, well, final question then for this week. Stephen on Twitter, uh, I love this one. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm going to extend the show to indulge in it. Um, <laughs> since everyone is obsessed with The Last of Us at the moment, which of the current City squad would you trust to cross the country safely in the aftermath of the zombie uprising? Um, I don't think I've ever done a question like this before, Adam. <laughs> so uh, over to you. Yeah, my instant reaction was Ruben Diaz. I just think it'd lead the way. It'd probably give me a piggyback if I needed it. Um, I'd absolutely trust him to navigate my way and control. The way he patrolled our, uh, uh, patrolled our defence in the... Uh, the COVID season when we uh, won it at a canter. Um, that's the Ruben Diaz I want taking me from Boston to wherever and navigating these end of world zombie <laughs> uprisings. I'm not sure, you know, because like, really? I, I, you'd, yeah, yeah, because you'd get sick of his motivational talks, though, wouldn't you? That's that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, tra- like, like, every, alert, every morning, people, yeah. yeah, every morning when you woke up in whatever godforsaken place yeah. you'd had to sleep in because the, you know, there's there's no facilities anymore, and he was just yeah. like, no, come on, every every step is one closer to the goal, and you kind of yeah, like, just, shut up, Ruben, I've not yeah. eaten yet. <laughs> as as uh, yeah, as he lifts his shorts up with each step. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not sure. Any uh, any names to throw forward, Alex? I mean, like the, the idea I had was um, like you watch things like The Last of Us, and there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of need to stand up for yourself in these sorts of situations. And weirdly, mm. Grealish is the man that stands out for me as someone who will stand wow. up for himself. The number of times where like he'll just go up to someone and call them a like I, I won't use the word, but like the possibly <laughs> yeah. worst possible swear word that you can. <laughs> like I just thought, yeah, like he likes a bit of needle. He, he he'll probably survive this. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not convinced about Grealish. Um, I get where you're coming from, but I think, you know, I think he'll just sort of be. He'll be playing with his hair or something, and then a zombie <laughs> will burst out of the of the the, the building next door and get. Yeah. Him. Um, and I, 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 I would have said Diaz. That that was my first thought mm. as well. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but I kind of think he's not quite unhinged enough. I think if you're going to cross a country that's infested by zombies and it's just an absolute apocalypse. I think, you know, it's all it's all good having this guy that's, you know, motivational. He's going to mm. put his body on the line and he might, you know, he might even sacrifice himself if it's only mm. one of you can, can yeah. survive or he'll stay behind to kind of, um, but if it was just like one person who you would trust the most to, to, to make it across, I think you need someone on hinge like Edison. Yeah, because oh, he, will do yeah, yeah. he will do shout. anything to survive. He, you know, he, whatever yeah. it is, he'd, 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 I don't know, he'd, he'd eat zombie flesh if he was, uh, if he was starving. He'd volley a zombie's head across yeah. the, across the, the, the country. I don't know. He'd do yeah. anything. It's yeah. just you, there's no telling what he'd do. But I think Edison, if, if you need someone to, to get across and just kill every zombie he comes across, I think it, <laughs> yeah. it would be, he'd be unruffled when he'd, he'd just pass one of the heads across the goal line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, when you said unhinged though, I thought, I genuinely thought you were going to say Haaland. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, with his Viking-like tendencies. Mm, yeah. 
that's oh. another good shout but I think Edison is just a bit crazier isn't he he is I think. Yeah. well if you've got any ideas let us know um, <laughs> if you've got any more questions like that please keep them coming because I'm more than happy to indulge that sort of stuff uh, but that's the end of this week's Blooming Podcast thank you very much for listening and thanks to my guests for today's show Adam Carter been a pleasure and Alex Brullerton yeah thanks for having me we'll be back next week so we'll see you then take care was the blue moon podcast please give the show a rating and a review where you can and don't forget you can listen without the ads by signing up to our patreon you'll also get an extra episode each monday here's a clip of this week's there's all this sort of mythology about paul Waite, the greatest midfielder that england's ever produced but obviously injuries cut his career short and his brother came out of nowhere from a sort of reserve team had been kicking around for a while and, and then all of a sudden he started scoring goals he a long ranger at Southampton, um, another long ranger against Forest, I think it was. And this goal... It's a decent finish, this goal. It's a very good finish, but I would speculate based on what I know about him after the event that it was a cross. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Murd, watching this game back, um, I am astounded at at City's inability to keep the ball out of the net from corners. It just like, it was the the, the number of times where Sheffield United were just going, no, no, have a bit more pressure. And City were going, oh God, we don't like the pressure and just capitulated. Yeah, what well, it was really unusual because we were we were really good defensively that season. We finished fifth, and we finished fifth, uh, as Matt said, the year before. Um, and I remember, I remember this. I was in the Sheffield United end along the side, which wasn't <laughs> great. Um, but we, you know, when I'm looking, when I'm thinking about that season and that side we had, we had a really good side then. Obviously, everything's in context based on the side we've got now. But you think we were we didn't have any investment, and yet Peter Reid had put together a fantastic side. And had we gone again and, and bought maybe a striker and a midfield, younger midfielder than Steve McMahon, we could have definitely got in the top one or two. I've no doubts about that. That's how good that side was. And yet Sheffield United absolutely dismantled us. You can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. And join us again next time for another episode. <laughs>